Well, uh, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. Uh, this semester, we are talking about apologetics and, uh, and worldview and world religions and, uh, and those sorts of things. And so thus far, we've been talking about kind of how do we integrate uh, the role of logic and, uh, and truth with our understanding of Scripture. And so this week, we want to consider the question of contradictions in Scripture. Are there any places in Scripture where there is an actual contradiction? And the answer to that is no. So you are dismissed, and uh, we'll be back here. Obviously, we want to talk about it a little bit more uh, than that and, uh, and help you to actually think about this, not just simply know that the answer is no, there are no contradictions in Scripture, but actually equip you to think about this uh, more comprehensively. And so uh, why is it? Why is it that we shouldn't just operate under this uh, knowledge that there are no some, uh, contradictions in Scripture and just kind of go from there? And the reason is because we want to help you to think through this. We want to help you to think through this clearly. Why? Because you might run into a, a, a seeming discrepancy in Scripture. You're reading the Bible, you come across something, you're not quite sure how to harmonize it with something uh, else. Or you might have a child who goes off to college and in college they're confronted by all of these quote-unquote contradictions or seeming inconsistencies in Scripture. Or you have a coworker who comes to you and asks you, hey, you're a Christian, right? You go to church. Uh, why is it that you believe in the Bible when the Bible has all these contradictions? So we want to equip you to be able to handle those conversations with truth and, uh, and with grace. This is, at the end of the day, equipping uh, class isn't just about equipping you personally, but equipping you so that you might do the work of ministry. That's what uh, the Bible says uh, is the role of pastors, that we might equip the saints for the work of ministry. You have opportunities to do ministry that I never have. I don't have your coworkers, I don't have your neighbors, any of those sorts of things. I have the unfortunate distinction of having all of my coworkers are believers. All of them actually understand this topic, and so you are the one who has the opportunity to do the work of ministry. And so the, this class exists not only for your personal edification, but to equip you in order to, uh, to be able to uh, help others. So why does it matter? Why does it matter if there are contradictions in Scripture? And so I think there's a couple of reasons uh, why we should give our attention uh, to this. The first one is because it, it profoundly affects our confidence in, uh, in the Word of God. And so Zach has talked about before how he has a, a fear of flying. In fact, one of our new attendees uh, is a pilot and took Zach on this uh, simulation and Zach still got scared in the simulator. But uh, so Zach has this fear of flying. Why is it that he has a fear of flying? Is it because he actually thinks every time he gets in the plane that it's going to crash? No, that's not actually the reason. He knows the statistics. He knows, statistically speaking, that it's probably not going to crash. It's not the fact that he thinks it will crash. It's the fact that he knows that it can crash. But imagine a world in which plane crashes weren't possible. Uh, for whatever reason, just uh, technologically, mechanically, physically, whatever it is, there is a world that exists and in that world, th there is no such thing as plane crashes. There's no possibility of a plane crash. Would Zach still be scared? Probably so, but he shouldn't be, right? Because there's no danger there. Well, likewise, if you think that there is a possibility that scripture could contain some sort of contradiction, it profoundly affects your willingness to actually trust in it. So unless you know that not only does scripture not have contradictions, but it can't have contradictions, 
then your confidence is always going to be somewhat uh, out of place. The second reason that we should pay attention to this subject is because what we think about the doctrine of Scripture reveals something of what, uh, about what we think about the, the nature and character of, uh, of God himself. Can God lie? That's a huge cr- uh, question. Can God contradict himself? Because if he can in one area, if there's one little place where there's contradiction in scripture, then what about all the other areas? What about whenever God says that he loves his people? What about where uh, God says he will never leave his people? What, what about where it says that, uh, that you are a child of God if you uh, love and trust Jesus? What about the, the claim that you have eternal life? You see, if God can contradict himself, then we can't just restrict that contradiction to one little uh, place in scripture. It calls into question the entirety of all God's promises that he makes to his people. And trusting God is essentially trusting in God's word. How does the first sin begin in the book of Genesis? The first sin begins with a question. Did God really say? Has God really said? So interesting that Satan takes away from God's word, and then you'll see Eve, she adds to God's word. But in some sense, any attack on the doctrine of scripture is an attack on the nature and character of God himself. An attack on the doctrine of scripture is an attack on the doctrine of God. So when we say the Bible is unclear, that implies that God does not speak clearly. If you were to say that the the Bible contains scientific or historical errors, That implies that God is not omniscient, that he didn't know those later advances in science or whatever it might be. If you say that that the Bible is not authoritative, that implies that God is not authoritative. If you say that the Bible contains contradictions, you are implying that God himself can contradict himself. In other words, you're implying that God can lie, that God cannot tell uh, the truth. And so you'll see Augustine, I have a quote there in your notes that he says this, for it seems to me that most, that most disastrous consequences must follow upon our believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. For if you once admit into such a high sanctuary of authority one false statement as made in the way of duty, there will not be left a single sentence of those books which, if appearing to anyone difficult in practice or hard to believe, may not by the same fatal rule be explained away. So my daughter's playing Jenga right now. She, not right now, right now. She's probably getting dressed. But uh, we're teaching her how to play uh, Jenga. And so think about the doctrine of scripture like that. Eventually you're going to pull something out and the whole thing is going to tumble. That's what uh, Augustine is saying here. That, uh, that w- when you admit any sort of contradiction, any sort of lie, any sort of error into scripture, the whole thing tumbles uh, down. So it's important that scripture doesn't contradict itself, but does the Bible itself testify to this? What we call internal consistency. Is the Bible uh, consistent within itself? By the way, we're not gonna do Q&A today uh, because I thought it would be more helpful to do an exercise at the end uh, whereby we look at a couple of, uh, of just claims of contradiction and work through those. But if you have questions, just email us. So instead of texting, just email info at parkwaychurch.com and we'd love to, uh, to answer any of those sorts of questions. So does the Bible itself 
testify to internal consistency. And it does. There are a number of ways that you can argue with that. Uh, It is certainly implicit, although there's not a passage that says the Bible doesn't contradict itself. There are a number of ways that you would get to the idea that there are no contradictions in Scripture. The first one is just by a simple syllogism, just the laws of logic. So think about it like this. If God cannot lie... And the Bible is very clear that God only tells the truth. In fact, Hebrews 6 says it's impossible for God to lie. So that's the first premise. If God cannot lie and if scripture is inspired, 2 Timothy 3.16 says it's inspired, it's breathed out by God, it's spoken by God. So if God cannot lie and if scripture is inspired, that is spoken by God and parentheses, if God is omniscient, Therefore, it's not that uh, he doesn't lie, but he just doesn't know something. If all those things are true, then scripture must not contain a contradiction. It must be consistent. If God can't lie and God knows everything and he speaks scripture, then therefore scripture cannot contain a contradiction. That's one way that you could arrive at, uh, at this premise. A second way that you could know that there's no contradiction is simply looking at what scripture says of itself in regards to all of its claims to be true. I'm not gonna list those out. There are dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds of evidences for that where Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken or you read in, uh, in Psalm 19 or Psalm 119 about uh, the word of the Lord being precious and preserved and all of these uh, sorts of things. So that's the second way that you could prove that there's no contradiction in scripture is just by the scriptural uh, uh, evidence for uh, its truthfulness. But the third is that you can actually look at the way that the authors themselves argue. And so uh, look at 2 Corinthians 1, 17 through 20. You should have that in your notes. Uh, Paul writes, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So you see there, Paul there is, is arguing that there is something that is wrong with contradiction. In other words, it would be uh, deceptive. It would be really strange to think that Paul would say it would be wrong for himself to speak a contradiction, but to allow scripture to speak a uh, contradiction. There's a number of ways that you can prove this idea, although no particular passage says, hear ye, hear ye, the, the Bible containeth no contradictions. Uh, the, the, there are a number of implicit evidences uh, for it. And so f- uh, three theses that we're going to, uh, to look at and then we're gonna talk about interpretive mistakes that people make. The, uh, the first thesis that uh, you need to know is that there is no actual contradiction in scripture for scripture is inherently true and a contradiction would imply a falsehood. We talked about this as we talked about absolute truth. So uh, there's no actual contradiction in scripture. If there is a contradiction in scripture, an actual contradiction in scripture, then that would be an error in scripture. That would be a lie in, uh, in scripture. That would be a falsehood that God is speaking. The second thesis though, is that there are a number of places of seeming inconsistency in scripture. There are a number of places where it seems as though there is a contradiction, where it seems as though there is an inconsistency, uh, but that inconsistency is apparent, but not actual. We'll talk about that. 
Uh, some of these are more difficult to answer. Others of them are uh, 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 more easy to answer, but all of them have some sort of uh, answer. So there are places of seeming inconsistency, seeming contradiction, but no actual contradiction in scripture. And the third one I think is really important, and you might not think about this all that often, and that is that the appearance of contradiction is not something to avoid, it's actually something to embrace. Why is that something to embrace? Because it forces you to actually think. So imagine, if you will, there are two types of people. There are those type of people who really like riddles, and they will say, don't tell me the answer no matter what. And then you have those people who will think about it for like two seconds and then go, what's the answer? All right? And, uh, and so you know yourself. Everybody falls in that category. I'm the kind of person who I don't ever want to know. If it takes me 30 years to come up with the answer, I want to just wrestle with it for, uh, for 30 years. But others don't like that. Others just uh, tend to give up. But when it comes to the Bible, we should all be like those who want to figure out the riddle. Uh, those who want to study, those who want to ponder, those who want to, uh, to think, those who approach any claim of contradiction kind of like a riddle. And so assuming there is a correct answer, if only you can grasp it, if only you can think hard enough and long enough uh, and well enough. And so let me give you an example of this because the result can be really, really rewarding. In fact, in those places where you think you find a contradiction, if you will just dig below the surface, I think that you will oftentimes find a buried treasure. And so one of the, uh, the classic examples of a quote-unquote contradiction in Scripture uh, concerns the account of Judas and, uh, and his death. In Matthew 27, verses 3 through 8, uh, uh, Matthew says that Judas hangs himself. But in the, in the book of, uh, of Acts, in chapter 1, uh, Luke says that uh, Judah, uh, Judas fall, uh, uh, falls in a field and that he bursts open. And so what, where most people stop in, in terms of saying there's no contradiction there is they just simply ask the question, well, what happened to, to, to Judas? And so they harmonize the accounts. That's probably, most of us have probably heard some sort of harmonization of those two accounts by saying that Judas hung himself and then he swelled up in the heat and then he fell, maybe the limb broke or whatever it was that he had hung himself from and he burst because of the swelling. He burst there in uh, the field. So Matthew says how Judas died and then uh, Luke says what happened uh, next. So that's great. That answers the question, how do we harmonize these two accounts? It proves that there's no actual contradiction between the two uh, accounts. And yet I would encourage you to actually go further than just asking the question, how do we harmonize this? Or what actually happened to asking yourself the question, why? Why do Matthew and Luke present different perspectives? Not contradictory perspectives, we've already seen that, complementary perspectives. But why is it that they present different perspectives? perspectives. And I think that's where you really begin to see uh, the beauty of the, the scripture here. And that's where it really gets fun to begin to, to approach this kind of like a riddle, kind of like a buried treasure. And the deeper that you dig, the more likely you are to find it. So let me give you an example of this, whether this is correct or not. Uh, I think this is a helpful way of approaching it. So one of the themes that you see in, uh, in the book of Matthew is that Jesus is presented as the Davidic king. 
Uh, we've talked before about how, how each of the gospels are gonna present a different perspective of Jesus. They're all complementary. They're, uh, they're all consistent with each other, but they just approach it from different angles, from different lenses. And so one of Matthew's big concerns is to present Jesus as the Davidic king, going all the way back to his genealogy that he begins his book uh, with. And so the son of David, that language, that phrase, son of David, is used 16 times in the New Testament, 10 of which, 10 out of 16, are used just in the book of Matthew. So think back to the, uh, to the story of David and you have another son of David, a biological son of David, and that biological son of David is named uh, Absalom. And what happens to Absalom? Well, he betrays the king and he's left hanging on a tree because of his own selfishness and conceit. Does that sound like anyone that you might encounter at the end of the book of Matthew? That's Judas. There is a sense in which Matthew is presenting this contrast between Jesus, who is the faithful son, versus Judas, who is a form of Absalom. He's this unfaithful son of, uh, of David. And so uh, Jesus is like David and Judas is like Absalom. And then whenever you look at the book of, uh, of Acts and what Luke is doing there, uh, you have uh, an Old Testament character. Uh, so you have uh, Luke presents Judas as buying a field and then uh, Judas's very blood stains that very field that he buys. And so if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might remember there is an Old Testament, uh, Old Testament character who sheds innocent blood in order to acquire a plot of land only for his own blood to be shed. Anybody remember who that is? Ahab, right? That's the story of Ahab. So Luke wants to present uh, uh, Judas like this wicked king. Why? To show that even though Jesus, like Ahab's victim uh, Naboth, dies outside the, the city, he is ultimately vindicated by the resurrection. So that whenever you get to the story of Stephen just a few chapters later, and Stephen's killed outside the city, you begin to see this pattern emerging of people being persecuted outside the city and yet ultimately being vindicated. That's the same that we see with Paul. Paul's dragged outside the city in the book of Acts and he's uh, stoned and left for dead only to be vindicated and, uh, and raised. So, there, uh, so not only should we ask the question, how do we harmonize these accounts? But I think also asking the question, why is it that they're presenting different uh, perspectives? And I think that's where you begin to see the real treasure in, uh, in scripture. We could do something like that. If we had enough time, if we had enough brain power, if we had enough resources, we could do that, uh, something like that with every single charge of contradiction in, uh, in scripture. With enough time and, uh, and effort, we could come up with really good and helpful uh, responses. So with that in mind, I want to look at why is it that people approach scripture and come up with these contradictions? And so uh, I wanna give a number of interpretive mistakes that lead to the charge of contradiction. Now notice that the mistake is with the interpreter, not with scripture. These are interpretative mistakes. These are not biblical mistakes. These are interpretive mistakes that lead to the charge of, uh, of contradiction. The, uh, the first one is, uh, is I think, uh, the easiest. And that is that a lot of people just simply don't know what a contradiction actually is. I call this the, uh, the inconceivable approach to scripture from the Princess Bride, right? You keep using that word and you don't know what that word actually means. So two of the biggest examples of that 
are uh, the Trinity, where people will say, well, there's a contradiction. You say that God is three and God is one. That's not a contradiction because we're saying that God is three persons and yet one God. We're using three and one in different ways, which means there is no contradiction. Whatever we mean by God's oneness, we don't even need to know what we mean by God's oneness. Uh, we simply need to know that it's different from God's uh, 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 persons. Um, and so notice we don't say that God is one person and three persons. That would be a contradiction. We said that there is one God who eternally exists as three uh, persons. One God, one substance, whatever that means, and three distinct persons, whatever that means, there is no contradiction. Another example of that is in the hypostatic union, that Jesus is fully human and also fully divine. That is no contradiction. It would be a contradiction if you said Jesus is fully human and then you also said Jesus is not fully human or that Jesus is God and Jesus is not God. But that's not what we're saying. We're simply saying that God is uh, both or Jesus is both God and uh, man. So that's not a contradiction. It's like saying that Jeff, me, is a father and Jeff is a husband. That's not a contradiction. I'm speaking of different uh, sort of things. So that's the first one and it's a really big one. In fact, most of the charges of contradiction could actually fit under this. People call something a contradiction because they don't really know what an actual contradiction is, so they're using the word uh, in an incorrect uh, sort of way. That's the first one. The second one is that people fail to take into account literary conventions. So if the first one kind of was uh, uh, kind of... uh, uh, overviewed all of the others, this is probably the largest bucket of, uh, of mistakes. There's various examples of how this plays out where people fail to take into account the various literary conventions of scripture. Uh, for, for one, think of all the variations in, uh, in biblical accounts. All right, so variations in, uh, in biblical accounts. For instance, in the resurrection account, you have Matthew and Mark who mention one angel that one angel appears to those who go to the tomb, whereas Luke mentions two. Is that a contradiction? Well, no, it's not. Why not? Because there is an infallible mathematical rule that is where there are two, there is also what? One, right? You can't have two without uh, one. Notice that Matthew and Mark do not say, I'll tell you to notice, although you're not actually looking at this passage, but if you were to read the passage, you would notice that Matthew and Mark do not say one and only one angel, definitely only one, definitely not two. Luke is lying if he says that there were two. That's not what they do. Uh, Instead, they say one versus Luke saying two. And so then you would have to ask the question, well, why? Why do they present uh, different perspectives again on that? Well, maybe only one spoke. And so uh, uh, that is uh, mentioned. Or somehow one was emphasized uh, over the other. There's lots of potential reasons. We don't even know, need to know which one is correct. We simply need to know that one of those could possibly be correct to prevent against the idea of a contradiction. Uh, suppose I go to the movies. Uh, for whatever reason, I decide to go to the movies with Zach and with Tim. And so uh, next Sunday, you overhear me talking and I'm talking to Katie, who is uh, Zach's wife, and I mentioned something funny that he said uh, during the movie. And then later on in the day, you see me talking to Kelsey, that's Tim's wife, and I mentioned something funny that he did on the way out of the movie. Do you assume that I'm contradicting myself? Well, did you really go to the movies with Zach or with Tim? No, you understand, I I went with both. I'm just simply giving a different perspective in a different way conversation. So variation in accounts 
is not a contradiction. Neither are estimates or, uh, or rounding. Look at 2 Chronicles 4.2, which says, then he made uh, the sea of cast metal. It was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim and five cubits high and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. We talked math before, let's do it again. Can anyone think back to, uh, to how do we know the circumference of a circle? Anybody remember that? Yeah, it's something, some, people just yelled out pi, you know? <laughs> pi something, you, you do pi and you multiply it by something, the quadratic formula and you got it in there. Uh, so it's circumference equals diameter times pi or the radius uh, times two and, and pi. And uh, so look at these uh, measurements here. What's the circumference? 30 cubits. What's the, uh, what's the diameter? 10 cubits. 10 cubits from brim to brim. What's pi? You don't have to give me like a million numbers. 3.14, right? What's 3.14 times 10? 31.4. This is not hard math, right? And uh, 31.4, but the Bible says it was 30. Is anybody bothered by that? No, of course not. Why? Because you understand he's just rounding. It's an estimate there. He didn't have to say 31.4 dot, 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 dot. I mean, literally, if pi is infinite, then your Bible would just continue on. No one's edified by that. So it doesn't have to do that. It just says 30 uh, cubits. It's not a contradiction. We do this all the time. If I tell someone that I'm going to meet them at Starwood Cafe in Adriatica, which if you've ever gone to lunch with me, that's the place that I always go, I just tell someone it's about a mile from the church. Now, I, I uh, Google maps it uh, in preparation for this lesson. It's actually 1.1 miles. Do you then turn me into the elders for lying? No, you understand. It's just an estimate. I'm just rounding. We see this a lot in the Old Testament when numbers are giving. Most of the time, there's, those are not intended as mathematically precise numbers, but instead uh, approximations. All right, so estimates or rounding are not examples of contradiction. Neither uh, is the use of popular non-technical language. Like when uh, the authors of scripture talk about the four corners of the earth or the sun rising. If you're gonna be consistent and you wanna call that an error, then you yourself can never use the phrase sunrise or sunset. But we do it all the time, right? Why do we do it all the time? Not because we actually believe that the sun uh, rotates around the earth, but because we're simply using this popular level language. So why would we deny to the authors of scripture what we ourselves do all of the time? Now, did the authors actually think that the sun rotated around the earth? Did the authors of scripture actually believe that the earth is flat? The answer is maybe. Maybe some of them did, but that is irrelevant. That doesn't matter. The point isn't that everything that the authors of scripture thought is inspired or inerrant, but rather that when they wrote scripture, everything that they wrote is inspired and thus inerrant. We don't mean that the authors of scripture knew everything about everything. They're not omniscient, just that everything that they wrote was preserved from any sort of error, from any actual contradiction or any sort of falsehood. So uh, this uh, use of, of popular la uh, level non-technical language, I don't know what that noise was, <laughs> is not a uh, contradiction. Sound like a pig. Uh, next one, summarization. This is wheels off this morning. Uh, summarization, summarization also is not a, uh, 
a contradiction. Look at John 19, 39. It says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So think about this. Did Nicodemus carry 75 pounds by hand? Did he carry that over his back? Was this like an early form of CrossFit or something? Did he use a wheelbarrow? Did somebody help him carry it? We don't know. It's a summary. We don't need to know. We don't need to know how he carried the 75 pounds. That's quite a bit of weight to, to, uh, to carry from, for any sort of uh, distance. We don't need to know because it's not intended as an exhaustive account. They've just given us a summary and not all of the details. They've given us the details that are necessary for us for life and godliness, but not all the details that we might uh, wonder. You see this all the time in scripture. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? In the book of Matthew, Matthew records that uh, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But in Mark, it just says, you're the Christ. Doesn't have the phrase, the son of the living God. Or in Luke, it says the Christ of God. Again, they're just giving approximations. They're just giving summaries. Or the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew versus the Sermon on the Mount in Luke. Uh, This happens all the time in scripture where they're just giving a summary and not uh, an exhaustive verbatim sort of quote. And this this applies not only to quotes uh, of speakers, but also the way that the the New Testament is going to quote the Old Testament. It's often just a summary. When when the Bible uh, quotes another passage or another person, the literary standard is much different than ours. They often just record the essence and not the exact uh, words. Uh, We need to understand we have very few precise verbatim quotes in scripture. If you're reading the Bible in the ESV or whatever it might be, you might have quotation marks there, uh, but there are no italics or quotation marks in the original text. The author is generally just giving us the sense. By the way, this is one of the reasons, there are many, but this is one of the reasons why it's really silly to hold that the red letters, that is the letters that Jesus spoke, are more authoritative than the black letters, right? I'm not saying you can't have red letters in your Bible. I'm just saying if you have red letters in your Bible, don't think that those letters are actually any different than the black letters. The reason that it's so silly to distinguish those, uh, there are a few reasons. Number one, Jesus didn't actually speak Greek, much less English. In other words, he didn't say any of the words that you actually are reading because he didn't speak the language that we're actually uh, speaking. The language that you're reading scripture in is not the language that Jesus Uh, spoke. So you're reading a translation. He spoke Aramaic or Hebrew, not English, which we're reading, not even Greek that it was originally written in. A second reason that's silly is in many places, we don't know whether the author is quoting Jesus or just giving a general sense of what Jesus said. In fact, there are places where uh, in different Bibles, they have different things in red because they're not sure when Jesus has finished speaking and when John has now started speaking or vice versa. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if a a letter is red or black. Why not? Because we don't treasure the red words of scripture more than the black words. Because in a sense, all of the words of scripture are red in a sense. That is, all of the words of scripture are inspired by God. So we might say that certainly in terms of their essence, in terms of their ontology that is their being, Jesus is superior to Paul, But in regards to their words, Paul's words and Jesus's words are both the words of God. And so therefore there is no distinction uh, between them. So 
Summarization is not a contradiction, neither is figurative language. When we speak of God's right hand, or when we say that the, the eyes of the Lord, we know that God is spirit. He doesn't have a right hand. He doesn't have eyes. But again, that's not a contradiction. Uh, we understand that that language is anthropomorphic. And related to that, we need to understand there is this error that relates when people fail to draw the analogy at the right place. Whenever the, the Bible speaks of God having a right hand, that doesn't mean that he physically has a hand with fingernails and veins and skin and all of those kinds of things. What does it mean whenever it talks of God's right hand? Yeah, it's, it's authority. It means that he's strong. It, it, it's a reference to his strength. And so we're, we're drawing the analogy at the wrong place if we think that that is meant uh, to give a, a physical description of God's body as if he has a body. When, we, when the Bible says that God sees, that doesn't mean that he has eyes. That's drawing the analogy at the wrong place. Instead, instead it means that God knows all things. And so scripture is full of figurative language. It's full of poetry and parables and allegories and metaphors and similes and hyperbole uh, and so forth. And it's not an error, it's not a contradiction for an author to use this sort of figure of speech. But it is an error for, uh, for us to take it literally. It is a mistake for us to take it literally. It's not an, uh, a mistake for the author to use it, it's a mistake if we interpret it in a way that he didn't intend us to interpret it. So if you read about God's right hand and you think God has an actual physical right hand, you have made the mistake the author of scripture has not. So those are some examples of literary conventions. There are others that you could throw in there, but a number of quote unquote contradictions relate to the fact that someone doesn't understand those. Uh, the next one, failing to take into account the role of progressive revelation. There's a line of thought that says that Christians are inconsistent and the Bible is inconsistent. Uh, in regards to morality, that we pick and choose uh, the rules. When the Bible says no shellfish, we disregard that because we really like shrimp. But uh, when the Bible says uh, no homosexuality, we inconsistently apply that. Considering how popular that critique is, like if you're on the internet, that is all over the place. Uh, considering how popular that is, it's really, really simple to defend against if we just understand the nature of progressive Revelation. We do this kind of thing all the time. Most days, my daughter will ask me if I'm going to work. So yesterday, she asked me, am I going to work? And I told her, no. But here I am. Did I lie to her? No, why not? Because it's not yesterday. It's today. And so therefore, it's different. Was I lying? Of course not. Or, no, or another example, we don't allow my son to eat uh, bacon. Why not? Not because he's under the Mosaic law, not because we're abusive parents or something like that, but because he doesn't have teeth. He's seven months old, right? When he gets teeth, we will allow him to eat bacon. In fact, we will command him to eat bacon because we're good parents and we want our kids to have good things, right? Are we being inconsistent? Of course we're not being inconsistent. We recognize there are certain things that are not allowed now that will be allowed in the future. And so when we come to scripture, we need to understand, we need to remember that God doesn't give the Bible all at once. He gave it over time and his expectations for his people change over time according to the time in which they live. Similar to how my expectations for my daughter or my son change over time as they get older. So that means that there are things in scripture that God commands at certain times that he forbids today. For instance, the conquest of Canaan. If you take up arms and decide I'm gonna go slaughter all of my enemies, whoever those enemies are, 
then you're inconsistently applying that uh, standard. There are things that he uh, commanded that he now forbids, offering sacrifices, uh, those kinds of things. There are things that God allowed in the past and he now prohibits. Uh, The New Testament speaks about God allowing uh, certain things like uh, divorce in certain cases. Uh, You might look at also the the example of polygamy, although some would uh, dispute whether or not that was ever allowed or whether that was uh, always sin. There are things that God forbid that he allows today. Marrying outside of your tribe could be like interracial marriage. Eating bacon, things that God once prohibited, but now he allows. There are things that God commanded or forbid in the past that he still commands or forbids. Don't worship idols, don't practice any form of sexual morality, love God and love others. But failing to take into account this progressive revelation leads to the claim of contradiction, but it's not actually a contradiction. Fourth, failing to distinguish copies of scripture with the autographs of scripture. The autographs uh, is a fancy word for the original manuscripts of scripture. This is a really fun one. In 1631, which was the 20th anniversary of the King James Version, the old King Jim, the, uh, the royal, royal printers in London reprinted it. But they made a pretty big mistake. Uh, it's called the, uh, the Sinner's Bible, or the Wicked Bible, or the Naughty Bible. And that is because in Exodus 20:14 it says, thou shalt commit adultery. Right? They left out the word not. So there you have it. There's a contradiction. Exodus 24, uh, 2014 says that we should. Nay, we must. It's a command from God. You must commit adultery according to this particular book. So is that a contradiction? Well, it's a contradiction in that particular printing, but that's not an actual contradiction in the word of God because any copy of scripture is only actually considered scripture to the degree that it actually corresponds to the original text of scripture. If that's confusing to you, then, uh, then you should uh, go back and listen to uh, Jared's teaching from a couple of weeks ago on where we got the Bible or a few years ago when we talked about, a, there's an entire science devoted to this called textual criticism. And so we spent a lot of time saying why, even though there are these places where there are variations in scripture, that that shouldn't in any way uh, actually bother us. Let me give you an exo- another example of this. This is a bit more difficult. 2 Samuel 10, 18 said, and the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach or Shabak, the commander of their army so that he died there. So we've already considered the fact that those are probably just estimates. Uh, but then compare that to 1 Chronicles nineteen eighteen. And the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed of the Syrians the men of 7,000 chariots and 40,000 foot soldiers and also put to death uh, so forth. So the fact that 40,000 is probably just an estimate doesn't help with the fact that one of the texts say 700 chariots and the other one says 7,000. That's not a rounding error, right? If you go to get your car fixed and they say it's gonna be 700 and it comes back 675 or 725, you understand, okay, I'm good with that. If you go in and they say it's gonna be 700 and then they give you a bill for 7,000, you're probably a little bit more upset. So that's not just a rounding error. What's happening there? Well, really simply, it's a scribal error. At some point in the history of transmission, again, we talked about this and where we got the Bible and in textual criticism and said why. This is nothing that you should stay up late at night worrying about. Uh, There's an entire science devoted to this. But at some point in the history of transmission, Someone either deleted a zero or added a zero. 
In fact, it's even easier to do in the original language because they would have just used a, a point uh, to represent uh, an extra zero. And so you can see how just a dot would have been added on or left off uh, at some point. And in order to answer the charge of uh, contradiction, I don't even know, need to know which is more likely. Did one of them add an extra zero or did a scribe leave off a zero? If I was preaching the text, I would probably need to wrestle with which one uh, of those is more likely. But in regards to just simply answering the claim of contradiction, I don't. I just need to simply say, I recognize that at some point, a scribe added a zero or left off a zero. That kind of thing happens all the time. It's kind of like ancient autocorrect. And uh, so, again, if you're confused by that, go back and listen to that audio, but you should not in any way be anxious or fearful uh, about that at all. Fifth, confusing interpretations of scripture with scripture itself. A number of the claims of contradiction are because people do this. Uh, and so obviously people have contradictory, contradictory or inconsistent interpretations, but that doesn't mean that scripture itself is contradictory. So Calvinism versus Arminianism is an actual contradiction. One is correct, one is incorrect, but that isn't because scripture is contradictory on this subject, but rather because different people have different interpretations of scripture on this subject. Likewise with the example of slavery, a lot of uh, Christians use the Bible to support 19th century uh, chattel slavery. That isn't because the Bible actually contradicts itself in regards to slavery, it's because there are a number of Christians who are inconsistent on it. And, uh, and so they are using the Bible in a way that the Bible wasn't intended to be used. Or paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. Those are actual contradictions. Paedo-baptists say that Christian parents must baptize their unbelieving infants, whereas credo-baptists say that they must not baptize their kids until they profess faith. But again, those aren't contradictions in scripture. Those are contradictory interpretations of scripture. Sixth, failing to understand the context or genre. We could have put this under the uh, heading of uh, literary conventions but I thought it kind of deserved its own place and it allows me to have seven points and seven's a number of completion. So um, regarding context, you've probably heard the old adage that a text out of context is a pretext for a proof text. A text out of context is a pretext for a proof text. So Psalm 14:1 says there is no God, but what's the context of that? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Or another example of this, the question of losing your salvation. Certain passages seem to imply that you can, although the overwhelming majority of texts would teach otherwise. So is there a contradiction? No, we recognize there is a different context in each of those passages. When we speak of no one losing their salvation, we're speaking about it from God's perspective. When the, the Bible would say, would seem to imply that you can, it's talking about from our perspective. From our perspective, it looks like people are falling away from the faith. From God's perspective, no one is actually ever falling away from the faith. Some just pretended to be of the faith who weren't actually of uh, the faith. So related to genre, lots of uh, claims of contradiction come from someone failing to consider the genre of a text. So for instance, the, the Bible says, give to the one who asks. And yet we see sometimes in scripture where that isn't the case. But we understand that's not a universal command. If someone walks in here and asks me, hey, can I borrow a gun to shoot everybody? Do you think I would say, well, the Bible says give to everyone who asks, here you go. Of course not. When my kid asks me for candy 
for, you know, three meals a day, seven days a week, do I just say, well, Jesus told me I needed to do this? Of course not. We recognize there is a context to it. Likewise in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go. Is that an absolute promise? No. It's the genre of Proverbs is, is proverbial general principles of wisdom. But lots of charges of contradiction come because someone fails to take into account genre and context. The last one is failing to interpret difficult passages in light of clearer passages. The probably most uh, classic example of this is uh, justification in James versus Paul. Uh, we have one statement in James that says that we are justified by works, but Paul explicitly says that we are not justified by works, but rather by faith. And so as we talked about, the fact that there seems to be some sort of inconsistency should cause us to pause and to think. And when we take into account the full counsel of God, we see that there's actually no contradiction at all. They're simply using the word justification in different ways. Paul means how are you actually counted righteous. Paul means uh, how the justification that Paul, I'm sorry, James means how the justification that Paul mentions is actually demonstrated or proven or, or visible or evident in your life. And, uh, and so failing to interpret difficult passages in light of clearer ones Bottom line, even if you cannot explain some alleged contradiction or inconsistency in scripture, that doesn't mean that it's actually unexplainable. I think at its root, charges of contradiction are actually rooted and grounded in arrogance and in pride. We can't figure out how to harmonize these two different things. And so we just simply say, if I can't figure it out and I am so smart and I am so all-knowing and I am so almighty, then therefore I'm gonna put the blame on the Bible or I'm gonna put the blame on God. There's a lots of things, if you're honest, that you can't explain. I can't explain the infield fly rule in baseball and I've played baseball. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist as a rule, right? It simply means that I'm limited, right? And so there's a degree of humility that's necessary uh, as we work through these things. At the end of the day, discarding scripture because you claim that it's contradictory is rooted in arrogance. It assumes that you are the judge and you are the jury of the consistency of God's word. That's like you dismissing some doctor's uh, expert opinion because you did 10 minutes of research on Google or whatever it might be. Maybe it isn't that the doctor's wrong. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're not as smart as you thought you were. Maybe Google's not as helpful as you thought uh, it was. Maybe the problem isn't with the Bible, but rather with you. Maybe you aren't as all-powerful or all-knowing as you like to think. Okay. Um, again, we're not gonna have Q&A today, which is a little bit different. We normally do Q&A because I wanted us to instead just do some exercises, like push-ups or something. Uh, I wanted us to do some exercises where we kind of walk through some of these things. And uh, so if you're sitting alone, if you would, just kind of move so you can be with at least one other person. You don't have to be with a, a big group, but kind of be where you're around somebody so you can do this in the context of, uh, of community. I went on a, a really well-done, popular atheist website, and I wanted to say, what's the cream of the crop in regards to these charges of contradictions? Uh, and I was looking for some really juicy ones to work through. Unfortunately, on this particular website, everyone was absurd. Everyone was really silly. And, uh, and so I'm just gonna give you the absurd ones. And, uh, and we're gonna work through some of these uh, uh, together. Uh, there are better ones. There are other things that would actually cause you uh, 
uh, maybe a degree uh, of, of effort and, uh, and cause you to uh, have to look into the Greek and look into commentaries and all of these sorts of things. But most of these, I would think that just simply by looking at them, you'll be able to spot the error, the interpretive mistake uh, as we walk uh, through it. So first one, it's in your notes there. Exodus 28 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But then they mention Romans 14, five. One person esteems one day as better than another while another person, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Which one of those interpretive mistakes comes to mind here? Yeah, progressive revelation, right? We're under a new covenant. We're under a new jurisdiction. We're no longer under the Mosaic law. That's not a contradiction at all because of the nature of progressive revelation. Okay, we're just getting uh, warmed up. Let's do another one. Ecclesiastes 1.4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And then 2 Peter 3.10, though, this is a huge contradiction. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Think about that for a second. Talk about it amongst yourselves. Okay, what's happening there? It's a figure of speech. That's one thing, right? Ecclesiastes is what type of literature? Wisdom literature, it's poetic, right? It's written in a, a, a poetic uh, style. The earth remains forever. We talked about drawing the analogy at the right place. The earth remains forever isn't meant to say that God will never create a new earth, but simply that it's lasting, that it's solid, that it's firm, that we can hope. Uh, the, the purpose of that is uh, our hope. Notice also that uh, of the things that Peter said, Peter isn't saying that the earth will be destroyed our eternal hope is on the earth, right? The hope that you and I have is not that we be delivered from these uh, f- you know, flesh prisons and go live in heaven forever. What is the hope? Resurrection, and where do we live? On earth, on a renewed earth. So even in 2 Peter, it's not saying God's gonna destroy the earth and there's not gonna be an earth at all. There's gonna be a restoration uh, of the earth. And, uh, and so it's still true that the earth remains forever. So there's not even, you could even say, there's not even a contradiction. This is the inconceivable approach to, uh, to scripture. You're using that word, you don't know what it means. Exodus 21, 23 through 25. This is one of my favorites because it's so silly. Uh, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for ver- burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And then you have Matthew 5, 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. All right, so talk about that amongst yourselves for a second. Okay, there's at least two things here. There's probably more than that, but at least two. What's one of them? Progressive revelation, right? So if you were to read the, uh, what immediately precedes Matthew 5.39. You don't even need to be able to quote it, just what's the verse before Matthew 5.39? Matthew 5.38, what does that say? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, that's progressive revelation. What else is going on here? Yeah, considering the context. You, you look back just one verse 
And it explains it. That's like saying, well, you know, Psalm 14 says there is no God. We've just simply left out the first few words, which mean everything. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Look at Matthew 8, 5 through 13. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And, uh, and he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be uh, healed and so forth. If you read that account in, uh, in Luke, you'll notice that uh, the centurion sends some others. Look there, he sent to him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. So is that a contradiction? In, in Matthew's account, it seems to imply that the centurion himself comes. In Luke's account, it seems to imply, or it says uh, directly, that he sends uh, elders. And, uh, and so you will hear that as a charge of, uh, of contradiction. Talk about that amongst yourselves for a second. Okay, what are some of the things happening here? What was it? Variation. Yeah, you just have a variation. What else? You have a summarization, right? You don't have all of the details uh, involved. And, uh, and then you also have the historical context. If you consider the historical context, even the point that the centurion is uh, saying, making here, is that when I have authority, I send someone and they do the thing that I sent them to do. And uh, so we see this all the time in scripture. Look at, uh, I put it also in your notes, Matthew 27, 26. That's he, that's Pilate, released for them uh, Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now that seems to imply that Pilate himself scourged Jesus. Do we think that that's actually what happened? Do we think that Pilate himself was the one who was holding the whip? Probably not. Or in uh, John 19, 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Did Pilate himself actually write those words? No, he probably had somebody do that for him. So the Bible is going to oftentimes use this sort of uh, idea that uh, someone in authority sends someone else to do something and it's almost as if they themselves uh, have done it. And so uh, again, that is not a contradiction. Bottom line, we're going to skip the last one just because we don't have time. Bottom line, with just a little bit of effort and a touch of humility, most alleged contradictions are pretty easy to explain. You don't need a degree in Bible you don't need an in-depth knowledge of Greek or Hebrew. You don't need this huge theological library in order to spot like 99% of the times that someone will say they find a contradiction in scripture. By the way, most of the time, if someone says, what about all the contradictions in scripture? And you ask them, give me one, they won't give you anything at all. But if they do give you one, 99% of the time it's as easy as this. You don't need any sort of uh, extra biblical knowledge or anything like that. Um, but uh, occasionally, for the other 1%, uh, you just need to do some work. Read commentaries. Ask those who might be a bit more learned. Approach it like a riddle rather than a problem. In 2,000 years of having scripture, in 2,000 years of Christian reflection, there's literally never been a single actual contradiction that's brought forth. There are mysteries. Uh, Peter will even talk about there, there are things that are in the Bible that are difficult. He says that Paul's writings are difficult. There are difficult doctrines, but no actual example of an actual error or contradiction in scripture. So let me just end with giving you a few helpful hints and then I'll pray and uh, we'll be dismissed. Number one, helpful hint for dealing with these alleged contradictions. So whether it's 
your child or your neighbor or your coworker or you yourself come across something and you can't explain it and it seems like an inconsistency, the number one thing is approach scripture with proper, proper reference and humility. To a very large degree, your presuppositions will drive you. If you presume that the Bible is consistent, you will approach alleged, uh, alleged contradictions as challenges to be confronted rather than obstacles to be afraid of. Imagine that you have somebody, maybe imagine that you're one of those people who likes riddles, but you have a particular friend who likes to give you a riddle that there is no answer to, right? They just make up words and they just say them to you, so you spend hours upon hours trying to think of the answer. Pretty soon, what's gonna happen? You're not gonna be friends with that guy anymore, right? But if you, if you approach it from the perspective of my friend is trustworthy, every time he's ever told me a riddle, there's been an answer and it's blown my mind. If you approach scripture with that same sort of mentality, then I think that you will get a lot further. So Psalm 119, 18, we pray it often here. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Second helpful hint, learn how to study the Bible. Learn the tools and the rules of hermeneutics. We've taught on how to study the Bible here before. We have resources uh, on that. 2 Timothy 2, 7, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So you need to learn how to read and how to interpret, how to observe and, uh, and synthesize scripture and all of these sorts of things. If you don't know how to do that, come and chat with us. Third, I'd encourage you, get a good study Bible, especially those of you who can't afford to get a whole bunch of commentaries and those kinds of things. Get one really good study Bible. I recommend just the one that's called the ESV Study Bible. If you're a member here and you can't afford to buy one, come and chat with me. We'll figure out uh, something that we can do to help you but get a good study Bible. And then lastly, don't try to do everything on your own. This is one of the very negative aspects of our culture is that we tend to exalt this idea of the priesthood of all believers as if all believers are equally gifted in all areas. And that's not true. There are people who are more gifted in interpretation and, uh, and these sorts of things. And so don't try to do everything on your own. Talk to others, talk to your spouse, talk to your parents, talk to your pastors. Talk to your group leaders, talk to other group members, whatever it might be. Avail yourself of the resources of 2,000 years of Christian scholarship. Most people who run websites about contradictions in scripture grew up in churches. And they grew up in churches that avoided depth, they avoided theology, and they avoided per other persons uh, because they simply suppressed their questions. They never really doubted their own doubts. Again, that's pride. So more than you need intelligence, more than you need education, when it comes to this topic, you need humility. And that comes from the Lord. So let's pray and then we will uh, be dismissed and we'll reconvene in here in about 28 minutes. Father, I thank you for your word and just confess that uh, it is good and beautiful and lovely and right and true. And, uh, and so I pray that our people would believe that. And that in doing so, they would believe you, that you are those things. And they would have a greater trust in your word. If there are any uh, lingering residual doubts or fears or concerns or there's uh, a passage that uh, they're wrestling with, Lord, that they would go through the steps uh, in this, uh, this lesson. And, uh, and then that may uh, bring them to have a deeper trust in you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be students of your word, confident in your word, because we love and trust you, because you're a good father. You give good gifts, you've given us your scripture, you've given us your spirit, you've given us your son, and so we pray in his name, amen.